A quick content note before we start the episode. In this week's film, For Whom the Bell Tolls, there is discussion of sexual assault, and we do reference this a few times during the episode. Welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. This week, we are continuing the 1943 nominees with another movie starring Ingrid Bergman about fighting fascism across the Atlantic called For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah, and it's also another Hemingway adaptation where you figure out, boy, Hemingway probably shouldn't be made into movies. <laughs> yeah. First of all, this movie is a hundred years long. Yeah. And it only... Well, I mean, it's hard to say it doesn't need to be that long. It should be an hour less. Because I'm not sure it needs to be at all. Yes. But, Susan, let's debate the question. How many minutes of story would you say this film has in it? Ooh. Uh... I mean, I think that you do need a little bit of time to create tension over whether or not certain characters in the anti-fascist group that we are following are gonna sell out the others an hour an hour <laughs> i was gonna give it an hour 15 but i don't think it really is that long no and i was gonna bump it down to 42 minutes i was gonna say this is an hour-long episode of television that is two hours and 45 minutes long and you feel every minute of it <laughs> Honestly, it's longer than that. I don't know how. I didn't feel like I was pausing all that often, but it took me five hours to watch the last two hours of this movie. That makes sense. I tried to watch it in chunks the first time, and it actually made it harder for me. So the second time that I tried to watch it, I just started at the beginning and, like, situated myself on the sofa telling myself like this is it you are here until you finish this damn thing and it was easier but it was still not pleasant <laughs> no the film is simultaneously so plodding and so predictable that it is hard to orient yourself in time yeah you start to lose track of what has happened and what you know is going to happen has she already talked about being raped? Because it feels like that's happened six times, but apparently it's happening a seventh. So, like, maybe some of the times you thought that that had happened were times where you just knew she was going to talk about it. Like, or... <laughs> Has Pablo actually betrayed them and then come back and they've all decided that actually it was a good thing they didn't murder him? Or has that just happened five times? We are stealing the horses. <laughs> we have always been stealing the horses. It has always <laughs> been about to snow. Like, since time immemorial. Yes. Because honest to God, an hour of this movie is spent between them going... 
we need to steal some extra horses and them going, it'd be bad if it snowed and it's snowing and that being bad. We should give the plot of this movie since again, it has the plot of like a 45 minute episode of television. Um, an American school teacher is fighting in the Spanish Civil War and we immediately see him blow up. What is the thing he blows up in the first like three minutes? A train. Right. And then he gets assigned to blow up a bridge. And then two hours and 45 minutes later, he blows up a bridge. <laughs> there is some stuff that happens in the interim. Yeah, he. I mean, he meets a cast of characters that ranges from interesting in theory to not even interesting in theory. Um, <laughs> with the most interesting in theory being Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. As... She is a girl from a Spanish village, and they do not even try and make her not look like Ingrid Bergman. Yes, she is blonde and blue-eyed and Swedish as ever. Yeah, they don't color her hair. They don't give some backstory about, like, he met my mom on vacation. Like, nothing. (laughs) Yeah, there is nothing there. She doesn't have an accent. Mm-mm. I mean, she does. She sounds like Ingrid Bergman, but she does not have a Spanish accent. It's really fascinating, the casting in this film, because there's a tremendous number of Slavic actors who are playing Spanish characters with their accents from their native countries intact, which is very confusing. It is one of those things where everything is so confusing, and some of it is for intentional effect. Some of this is about process of getting acquainted in a social group, which is a weird way to frame living with a bunch of anti-fascist gorillas in the mountains. But that is, storytelling-wise, what happens for the middle two hours of this film is just sort of sitting with these people and figuring out the social dynamics. And so some of that disorientation is that our point of view character doesn't know who these people are and doesn't know their relationship to each other and, like, has to feel that out. But then also, yeah, some of it is just like, why is no one speaking with a Spanish accent? Wait, one person is. Wait, what is happening? Is this person... It, why does she keep saying she's ugly? Because she kind of is, but why does everyone keep insisting she isn't ugly? Like, it is... <laughs> I sound like a crazy person. I know, but that's the experience of watching this film. It's like a sensory deprivation tank. <laughs> like, nothing happens so hard that your brain starts filling in the gaps. So to fill in the gaps from what you were saying, though, he's assigned to blow up this bridge... He is given a guide, essentially, who is a local Spanish anti-fascist whose name is Anselmo in one of the worst fake mustaches I've ever seen. And because this is in Technicolor and they haven't quite adapted makeup for Technicolor, you can see the spirit gum in the hairs of his mustache and it's very distracting. Yes. They go through the mountains to this cave where this group of anti-fascists are living together and the only ones who really matter even though there's probably 10 maybe total who live there are Raphael who is a Romani guy and boy there is a lot 
of really racist stuff against Romani people in this movie. Oh boy, is there ever. And like, it is supposed to be our comic through line lightening the mood. Right, is that Romani people are thieves and dumb is our comedy? Yeah. Pilar, who is in her like mid to late 40s maybe, who is a Spanish woman who is kind of running things, but also kind of not. You also wanted to see the movie where she's the main character, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, she is the only actually in practice interesting person, and she keeps like... But it's that thing where everyone keeps saying interesting things about her. She's fine. She wins Best Supporting Actress for this, and she deserves it because it's the best performance in the film by far. And she is carrying the only good parts of this movie on her back. Yes, and yet still, just tremendous amounts of time are spent talking about her and saying that she did something that's far more interesting than what she's actually given to do Yes, on screen. And then the third one, who is the only one who matters, is Pablo, who is played by Akim Tamarov, who is ethnically Armenian but grew up under the Russian Empire and whose native language is Russian who speaks with an incredibly heavy Russian accent to the point of dropping articles like V and A. And it took a very, very, very long time in a movie that is already very long for me to get past that because he just sounds like every villain in a Cold War movie, but he's actually a Spanish anti-fascist during the Spanish Civil War. This is what I'm talking about with everything being so confusing and everything being confusing because you can't remember what has happened and what is definitely going to happen is the moment you meet him, you're like, oh, this is the guy you're supposed to shoot in the head in Act 1. This guy is only going to be problems for the entire film. Right. I think because of this thing I'm saying happens with time, I can't say for sure, but I think it's about the hour and 45 minute mark where he actually betrays them and runs off. Maybe. Time does not exist in this movie. It is so elastic. Yeah, but by like 20 minutes in, Pilar is like, well, he will betray us all, and so I'm in charge now. And you're like, well, that makes sense. I guess he's gone. But then he just periodically shows up and is like, hey, it's me, the drunken coward. I'm going to go talk to a horse. And you're like, why are they still letting this guy wander around? (laughs) Oh, and there is one other person who is, I guess, sort of important to the plot-ish, which is Ingrid Bergman's character, Maria, who is this 19-year-old, and we learn that She was the daughter of the mayor of the town where she's from, and the fascists came in and executed her parents, and then they cut off all of her hair, and then she was raped by a number of soldiers, and she is 19, which, listen, Ingrid Bergman looks great. I'm not going to take that away from her. She does not look 19. No. (laughs) She and Gary Cooper fall in love. I guess. Yeah. And they have zero chemistry. No. I mean, she is acting her heart out, trying to be very, very romantic and very, very much in love. And they vaseline the lens up to hell every time she looks up at him. 
And Gary Cooper looks like he showed up to get a paycheck. For sure. Gary Cooper is doing his aw shucks Gary Cooper. And it is such a bad fit for this movie. He's essentially giving the exact same performance he gave in Sergeant York. Which also was not a great Gary Cooper performance. No, but it fits even worse here. Because there's nothing aw shucks about this character. He's a classic Hemingway toxic masculinity protagonist. Maybe after two and a half hours, I will break down and admit that I care about rocks or something. (laughs) Instead, you just get this sense where Gary Cooper's just rolling with everything. Like people come in and are like, what if I just shoot you, foreigner? And he's like, well, all right. I've got a bridge to blow up, so if you're gonna do it, maybe do it quickly. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Anybody want some lunch? And you're like, what? (laughs) And then the remaining, you know, two and a half hours of this film are just them in and around this cave, drinking, eating food, talking about when they're gonna blow up the bridge, talking about how they need to get more horses than they have talking about whether or not Pablo is going to betray them or is going to lead them out of the mountains through a different route once they have blown up the bridge. And then in the last 10 minutes, they blow up the bridge. He gets shot during the escape and then decides that he's going to just hold the chasing fascists off of everybody else by dying in a big shootout. And then that's the end. Again, by like minute five, you're like, oh, so he's going to die heroically blowing up this bridge. (laughs) Yeah. There's just no other way for this story to end. It's just that's the tone the movie sets immediately. And it doesn't really do anything interesting in the middle. It's like the opposite of the Oxbow incident, where it is a Twilight Zone episode that you're like, God, this can't end fast enough. There's no joy in the journey. You're just waiting to get to the destination because the destination feels so grimly inevitable. And then you just have to slog through two hours and 45 friggin' minutes before he shoots straight down the camera And the movie ends. In the interim, there's a lot of stuff about he and Pablo fighting, he and Maria falling in love, quote-unquote. Pilar telling him that Maria loves him and not to trust Pablo. And basically the same things happening over and over and over again with slightly different dialogue. Yeah. And unlike the Oxbow incident, which was a very tight 75 minutes, and where... We got to know and care about the characters despite knowing exactly where this was headed. I didn't give a shit about anybody in this film. And all of the attempts to... That's not true. I did give a shit about Pilar. But all of the attempts to humanize these characters, like when they tell the backstory about how Pablo used to be this big revolutionary leader and then for some reason just stopped caring, which has never gone into in any way. I still didn't give a shit about Pablo. I was still thought that he was just an annoying drunk. 
Yeah, that's the thing, is this movie treats every character like we're just going to have to peel back layer after layer, but they're all so broadly drawn that you're like, oh, I know your thing, immediately. So instead, it's like, let me tell you my tragic backstory. I was raped. I know you announced that. Everyone announced that the moment you came on screen. Right. Okay, but here's the thing. Let me tell you in detail about it. And you're like, okay. I mean, even Gary Cooper in the movie is like, please don't. Please. Right. You know, it's fine. Like if somebody who has gone through this kind of trauma needs to talk about it to excise it, that's okay. Right. But when she says, Pilar told me I had to tell you because you had to know. It's like, you really think that this American guy who came over to Spain to fight fascists is going to be like, oh, well, I mean, you're not a virgin, so I guess I can't love you. Right. The least interesting thing about Pilar, which comes up a lot, is this like, homespun old Spanish woman wisdom thing about, you know, how men and women really relate. And unfortunately, a lot of her screen time is eaten up doing that. When whenever she doesn't do that, she's rad as shit. Yeah. Those two things could be interestingly in conflict, but instead it just feels like the movie, because it's what happens in the book, narratively puts her in charge and then goes, okay, but she's an old lady, so she has to have like wisdom about how men and women fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing. Because it is often things like that. Like, Pilar told me I had to describe in graphic detail how I was raped. And it's like, she did? Why did she do that? Why? Well, and it also goes so entirely against the character that we know, because it feels like Pilar would be like, look, honey, whatever happened to you is what happened to you. And that is your business to do with what you want. Right, exactly. And you don't have to tell him anything. Which is so much more in line with the character. Yeah, and like interesting in a way that this movie won't be. It would be something if this movie was about a bunch of people who are wearing their trauma on their sleeve, all trying to hide their trauma. Right. But it isn't even that. It's a bunch of people wearing their trauma on their sleeve, and then the movie's like, you're never going to believe it, these people are traumatized by war. And you're like... I believe it. They all immediately announce that. Yeah, they all live in a cave getting drunk all day long. I'm pretty aware that they're suffering some pretty serious trauma from this war. Oh, also, can we talk about the absolute just bullshit, rah-rah American exceptionalism reason that Gary Cooper's character gives for going over there? Because... I mean, you go to another country to fight another country's war against fascists, and you've got to be kind of in a very particular kind, a very particular mindset. And whether that is, I just want to go to war because war sounds rad, which, let's be real, was probably one of the reasons that a lot of people went and ran over to the Spanish Civil War, or fascism is bad and we should fight it at every turn he doesn't really give either of those he's like i vote republican and my daddy was a republican and i'm like why are we making this about america <laughs> right and it honestly comes off as making him seem deeply confused because those two things are just named the same thing the republican party is not representing the spanish republic <laughs> 
Right. It's like we're a republic and not a democracy pedants, except he went off and like (laughs) fucking fought a war because of it. And then they try to shove in this like, well, what's happening in Spain is just testing ground for what's going to happen in Germany and France and Italy. And you're like, okay, yeah, but also y'all didn't know that at that point. (laughs) It's just so exhausting. I've been talking a lot about this sort of metaphor of a movie that is sleek in its construction and completely perfectly made versus a thing that's like a big old Jenga tower. This works by addition, but it could fall apart at any moment. And this is just a big pile of bricks on the floor. Like, I don't even know how to begin making this a movie. I have some theories, but I'd basically be starting from scratch. It's not even bad in a way that indicates how you could have made a good movie out of this. It's just bad. I really don't know what the impetus was to make this into a film. I haven't read For Whom the Bell Tolls. I've read A Farewell to Arms and The Sun Also Rises. And in those particular books, I can see making a film adaptation out of it. But you would have to do a whole lot of voiceover and a whole lot of looking at the emotional effect of those situations on the narrator or the person from whom we have their perspective. (laughs) You don't get any of this. Like Gary Cooper's character is so utterly divorced from any kind of emotionality, even suppressed emotionality. I haven't read it either, but I was sort of operating on that assumption. That's a very Hemingway thing of like outwardly all of his protagonists are the most stoic of stoic men, but it isn't completely insufferable because you have access to their internal monologue. And even if they don't necessarily have a lot of emotional self-awareness, they at least have a lot of shit going on to get to that stoicness. There's more in what is not said in Hemingway than what is when we're talking about the emotionality of our first person or limited perspective characters. And you can't really get that across if what you're going to do is just do a beat for beat adaptation. (laughs) Yeah, I was sort of doing a Hemingway slam with my don't do Hemingway adaptations thing at the start of this, because I'm not the hugest Hemingway fan. But I genuinely think he is just very hard to adapt because his work is so much about the internality of largely kind of boring and vaguely irritating people (laughs) and when you're just watching that it's just gary cooper sitting there for two hours right because you don't have access to that internality and it is on the one hand i don't know if i would like this movie a whole lot better if it was just two hours of gary cooper staring at rocks with a lot of voiceover (laughs) but on the other hand fuck do something yeah (laughs) I think I might take the rocks with the voiceover, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I don't don't have any better ideas, except, like, don't make this movie. In watching this film, the point where I started to really be able to focus on what I thought about it was comparing it to Casablanca. Because in a number of ways, this is essentially the anti-Casablanca. It is basically taking the same formula, which is... American across the Atlantic is involved in some capacity in fighting fascism, 
has a love thing with Ingrid Bergman, and spends a great deal of time in one internal location drinking a lot. <laughs> and it turns out, not a recipe for success. Not even a basic, like, these are the potatoes, flavor them how you will thing. Like, it is not a foundation for a film. And it kind of makes Casablanca all the more extraordinary. Right, because Casablanca is a film about trying to get the protagonist to stop sitting in a room and drinking. And this movie is about, well, I guess we should just keep sitting in this room and drinking because there's nothing else to do because war. <laughs> Which is a natural reaction. And Casablanca is saying like, yeah, that's a really natural Shit's bad. Everyone is traumatized. I would be sitting in a room and drinking too. But it is a film of characters desperately trying to shake the protagonist out of that ennui. And this is a film about just like marinating in that until finally we blow up a bridge. And it's bad. It's not good. I mean, the thing that Casablanca really has over this... I mean, other than a million things. But one of the things it very much has over this film is that, and we talked about this in the episode, is that every minor character in Casablanca is a real person. And in this, you have five central characters, central-ish, all of whom fulfill a very one-dimensional, pre-prescribed role, none of whom feel like real characters, and even when you dive deeper into the traumas that they have faced during this war and the situations that they have experienced and survived, which you don't get that much of in Casablanca, they still feel like less developed people. Yeah, I mean, there really is almost no internality to anyone in this movie. Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman are the only people who, I, eh, I guess, Pilar. But, like, that's the weird thing about her, is that you can never quite get a handle on her internality. And it, I'm not clear if that's because she's an extremely complex character or because she's written badly but performed well, you know? I'm gonna go with the latter. That's where my money is. So you end up with two and a half characters that have any dimensionality to them at all. And even those tend to be very belabored. Mm -hmm. Like there just isn't a lot to these people externally. And the film is screaming what you have to know about their internality at you. That it doesn't feel like you're exploring the character at all. It just feels like, ah, yes, the scene where he announces his heroism. <laughs> yes. Right. Let's rate this movie so we can stop talking about this movie and dump it in the garbage bin of history. I'm gonna give it a one. Yeah, that's- I was gonna do two, but I don't care enough to fight for a two. One. I- I tried to think of any reason to not give it a one. I was like, well, but, you know, it's in color and they tried really hard. So, I'm like, no, but it sucks. It's racist. It's super boring. It's incredibly long. It's poorly written. It's not well directed. There is no value in this film that gives it something above, yeah, you put some stuff on film. Here was my argument for a two. It's not pro-fascist. 
Okay, that's the bar being under the floor. (laughs) Yes. No, I'm fine with a one. I'm just saying that was the that was the pro this movie argument that I could muster. Yeah, that is that's fair. It is not pro-fascist. It's kind of more anti-fascist in the like everyone just says I don't like fascists. That's true. They don't even really talk about why fascism is bad, why they don't want to live under a fascist dictatorship. It's just, I'm fighting the fascists. Nothing about, like, why they're Republicans. God, you don't get a sense of anybody's history. Like, why is Pilar doing this? Only Ingrid Bergman has any kind of history to her. And it is, like, I keep harping on it because a well-done version of that plotline could be interesting, could be very emotionally affecting, could be very important for survivors of rape and sexual abuse. This ain't any of that. (laughs) Nope. And so it feels weirdly prurient whenever she brings it up again. It's weird. Like, it's like the movie is fixated on making her keep talking about it in a way where she clearly isn't. Right. And if you compare that to the Albanian or Romanian, I don't remember, refugee in Casablanca who approaches Rick and says, you know, if you don't give me the papers to leave with my husband... I'm going to end up sleeping with Renault to do it and never even says it. And it's so much more harrowing. Yeah. And nothing even happened to her yet. No, it is putting so much on Ingrid Bergman's shoulders that she just says all of this stuff. I feel like the studio is like, it's so brave that we're having a character say this. But the thing in Casablanca feels much braver and much franker because it's not about using the words. It's about facing the thing. Here is the reality of this person's life. And you going, oh, fuck. Right. And instead, Ingrid Bergman delivers it very well. She's a talented actress, but it just all feels like, don't I get an Oscar for saying trauma? And the fact that she is acting her ass off in this and Gary Cooper is so lazy made me even more angry during this film because she is miscast she does not look spanish in any way there's no explanation as to why this incredibly swedish looking woman is a little villager from spain she does not look 19 and this guy that she's supposedly fallen head over heels in love with is a block of wood and she is acting her ass off with terrible lines and dialogue i mean where do the noses go yeah and it just made me mad because it's like how dare you put this very fine actress in this position (laughs) do you suppose it's a thing in the book where it isn't a grand romance it's very clearly a romance of convenience because you immediately get the sense that everyone in the camp is like Listen, lady, you have to fuck somebody. We're going crazy horny in here. (laughs) And then a Gary Cooper shows up and she's like, good enough. But instead they try and transform it into this doomed tragic love where instead it's like two people in a harsh world just trying to find some reason to hold on in the book. Uh, Probably not, just judging by how Hemingway always treats his love interests in books. I mean, the guys fall absolutely head over heels for anybody. 
which is one of the reasons why people level accusations of misogyny at his writing is because he puts women on a pedestal that when they are not utterly perfect, there's the tearing down of them that is so cruel. Yeah, well, then we're back at square negative three to make this into a movie. <laughs> Don't watch this movie. Yeah. Um... And I got nothing. This movie should not have been made. No. Not even shouldn't have been nominated for Best Picture. Straight up should not have been made. Yeah. So next week is, I think, our final Ernst Lubitsch film. We've said that like four times. Which one is- Yeah, I know, but just let me me have this. Let me believe it. (laughs) Maybe it'll be like Ninochka where we finally come around on the guy. Ish. Ish, yeah. Ish, yeah. Heaven can wait. I mean, I've heard good things, so yeah. I'm kind of shocked that <laughs> <laughs> I I know we're like the only people on earth that hate Ernst Lubitsch. I feel like I'm being gaslit by all of film Twitter because they just everybody is into this guy, and I feel like an uncultured swine. That we're like this guy's trash. I don't. I think none of them have ever actually watched a damn thing that he has made and are just like, yes, Ernst Lubitsch, I understand that he's very great because film history books have told me that he was important. Yeah, that's kind of my theory, is that like the Lubitsch touch as being like a terminology for like doing doing a little extra, just plussing something a little bit, is like too useful to not use, even if Ernst Lubitsch's extra touch was make the films worse and more misogynist. Yeah, that is often the Lubitsch touch, so maybe it won't be in this case. We'll see. Yeah, it's, I I was going to say it's, a, it's got, I don't know, it's not really an impressive cast. The poster is... I mean, Jean Tierney is beautiful. Yeah, but it. I'm not going to knock her, but she is not, it's not like a, oh shit, it's a Tierney movie, you know? Yeah. And the poster is nothing, and it's Ernst Lubitsch. But, I don't know, heaven can wait. Maybe it'll be good. Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) It is a remake of Here Comes Mr. Jordan, so... No, it's not. The 1978 Heaven Can Wait is a remake of Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Oh. This is a completely different story that has nothing to do with Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Oh, well, thank God, because I really hated Here Comes Mr. Jordan. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, So at least it has that going for it. So we're back at square one. (laughs) Yeah. And until then... No. No. This was not a movie. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm just going to say it right now. Because of this movie, I'm never going to read the novel. This isn't even a novel anymore. That's how much this wasn't a movie. Yeah. 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 It's what I love is that that was a joke and you were like, no, this this is our grim work. Like, we we must now live in a world (laughs) where this isn't a novel. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm actually okay with saying that the book is also not a book because the movie was so not a movie. Yeah, I don't know if we have that authority, but if we do, that's true now. So it is done. Nice try, Hemingway. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye.